Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Politics. Insert punchline to political views you disagree with. Let's start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by The Wedding Bride. Say yes can doosville to the year's blockbuster romantic comedy. Take home the wedding take home the wedding bride today now on DVD. <laughs> I nailed that. that <laughs> but if my intern is doing her job properly, no one will ever know the wiser. There you go. Welcome everyone to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a show where we like to break apart a film and figure out what it's made of. Um, hopefully in a number of ways in how it's structured, maybe thematically, maybe some editing things that we can take away, story, themes, symbolism, all the things that make up movies that are good that you don't know. Or bad. Or bad. That's true. Lacking some of those things can be detrimental. Absolutely. I was talking to my one of my roommates uh, last week after we did The Departed. She was asking, she was like, we got into another previous conversation whenever I just started some of the basic things, the way I see film and whenever I'm watching and what I'm actually thinking while I'm watching. And she, it kind of opened up some of her mind portal of like, oh. And so like two weeks later, she's like, hey, I've been wanting to catch you because uh, I spend a lot of time in my room working so I can be a rough roommate in that way. But she was like, I've been wanting to catch you. I've been like watching things differently just from that conversation with you. And I wanted to ask you, like, I watch romantic comedies and I enjoy them, but they're not as satisfying as something like we watched Inception just recently. And I was like, why is this so much better than some of these other movies? And I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. And I was Where like, Where do you start? Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, you're probably picking up on something like theme, like for a romantic comedy, right? It's going to be very surface level and it's just going to be the laws of attraction and the meet cute. And are these people going to get together? Are they going to run into these obstacles? And the point is to kind of get you to laugh and feel something very superficial about love. Whereas something like Inception is quite literally drilling down into the mind um, and is trying to get at maybe some other levels of themes and they're getting at something much bigger and grander that is going to resonate a lot more with you. And then I went into our Departed episode in mm-hmm. great detail and she was just like, I felt like the a fan was blowing her hair. <laughs> but it was really cool to be like, oh, okay, you know what? If people listen, they can actually walk away with some of the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it, even if it's just to kind of wake up an opinion that they like this, like her, she had an opinion but didn't understand why. I mean, a lot of that, I think, is just having conversation, either listening to conversations like this or having conversations with other people that care about those things and look for those things and in film or in whatever it is that you're that you're interested in. So, you know, I mean, even from doing this podcast with you for the last year, crazy has been a year, I've learned so much about, you know, not just like the names of things or angles or, you know, like rules of cinematography or, you know, what separates good actors from bad or a good performance from a bad one, but also just like, you know, how to kind of explain to myself how I feel while I'm watching a film you know, I mean, using almost famous as, as an example, you know, like, uh, like I was feeling certain ways at certain times and I wasn't, it, w- it wasn't until I could step back and kind of like reassess why I was feeling those, those ways that I could analyze the film better, you know, but knowing 
how to do that is kind of a skill in itself. That's so true. And we'll get into it. I mean, spoiler alert, there are so many spoilers coming ahead for Almost Famous. I'm pretty excited to do this episode for a lot of reasons now after talking to you briefly. But yeah, I mean, even just meeting him as a young boy, uh, William, his mom is giving him those tools to analyze films uh, specifically, but life itself. And growing up, I've always kind of tried to look at things differently, but I really, obviously as a kid, didn't have any of those tools. And only really within the last few years have I begun to develop them and doing same as you, man, like doing this podcast the last year. And that is crazy. It has taught me so much that I am just dying to use as a filmmaker. And and I've been using more and more uh, to get away from kind of the cut, copy, paste method of creating content, whatever it is. Yeah, that's awesome. All that said, let's get into it. Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about uh, cinematography, a little bit of the editing, definitely going to be diving pretty deep down into themes and symbolism. Um, It's going to be a grand old time. Yeah. And more. Awesome. So uh, as Wes said earlier, uh, there are spoilers galore in this. So if you haven't seen Almost Famous, please go watch it. Pause this, go watch it and come on back. Synopsis of the film coming up. A high school boy is given the chance to write a story for Rolling Stone magazine about an up-and-coming rock band as he accompanies them on their concert tour. It's written and directed by Cameron Crowe, starring Billy Kudrup as Russell Hammond, uh, Francis McDormand as Mom, Kate Hudson as Penny Lane, Jason Lee as Jeff Beebe, Patrick Fugit, Fugit? No idea. Sure. Uh, As William Miller and Philip Seymour Hoffman. The Amazing, as Lester Banks. Real world occur. I mean, I am really confused here. All these rules and all these sayings and nicknames. Honey, you're too sweet for rock and roll. Sweet? Where do you get off? Where do you get sweet? I am dark and mysterious and pissed off. And I could be very dangerous to all of you. I am not sweet. And you should know that about me. I am the enemy. Look, you should be happy for me. You don't know what he says to me in private. Maybe it is love, as much as it can be for somebody- Who sold you to Humble Pie for 50 bucks and a case of beer? I was there. I was there. I'm sorry. What kind of beer? (laughs) I don't know about you, and we're definitely about to dive in to about you <laughs> are we yeah but okay. for me like kate hudson absolutely slayed me in this movie yeah um, oh yeah i and i don't know if she won but i know she got nominated for like a as best supporting actress and yeah i mean that moment alone was like incredible but also the moment when she first meets or we f- get to see her first meet russell hammond mm-hmm. um She's just immediately taken and you believe it. Like she is wholeheartedly like 
vibing this character. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know yeah. the last time you've seen Almost Famous, but what was your what was your takeaway uh, after watching it? So, I mean, the first time I saw it was, you know, a long time ago, 10 years ago or so. And I've seen it a couple of times now. And what I've come to realize is that it's kind of a pile of shit. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, okay, no, not, not. That's, that's, that's the over, you know, I went, I went too far. You are the enemy. It's definitely not. It's definitely not that. But um, I see the point. I've, I saw the point from the first time I watched it. The point is to tell this interesting story, right, of this kid that where music changed his life and gave him a purpose beyond what he originally thought was possible, right? And he fell in love with it, got to do this amazing thing, touring with this band across the country, saw, the, saw basically like the rise and fall of them and experienced a lot of life along the way. Sounds awesome. Right. Sounds fun. Agreed. I would argue that Spinal Tap did it better. Wow. Without the kid. Right. I will say Spinal Tap set the bar really high. (laughs) Okay. Because when you, okay, this is obviously it's not a comedy, but there are a lot of moments where they try to, to be comedic. And it, to me, it just doesn't always land Okay. One thing that I did like was that I heard from several sources, I researched this, that originally uh, Brad Pitt was cast, was asked to, uh, to do, to play Russell's character. Yeah. And he passed. And thankfully, because if you can imagine a character like Russell telling this kid that, talking to this kid and saying that it's cool to not be cool. Can you imagine Brad Pitt? saying something like that or talking in that way? Like, well, in response, two things. For one, and it's conflicting. This is a paradox for me. Because on the one hand, I'm like, I can't imagine watching this and seeing anyone other than Billy Crudup. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I have yeah, no yeah. idea. Yeah, sure. <laughs> We're great at pronunciation. Sure. And I feel like having Brad Pitt in that role would take me out of this idea of uh, this Upcoming band that you haven't heard before, right? The, the band itself, sure, yeah. but also just a transcendent rock star. And watching Russell Hammond, I'm like, yeah, I could completely believe he was in a band called Stillwater, and they were just having their moment. But on the other hand, Brad Pitt to me is like one of the most underrated actors oh, yeah, of he could, our time. He could have pulled it off, yeah, he for sure. Um, but it would have been even less believable than it was. Sure, uh, yeah. And it was yeah. uh, it was not believable <laughs> to me. And I, so, hold on, say that again. What was what do you think Russell was trying to say to? Oh, he, okay. I, I don't remember the line exactly, mm-hmm. but he was basically telling the kid that it basically that it's it's cool to be uncool. Like there's no, I wish I had the line. I don't have it in front of me, but it was essentially that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and just the idea of the coolest guy, you know, right. the bet. And it's cool to be like not good looking or something. Right. You it's know? like, it's like a guy with six pack abs telling you, dude, it's amazing to be overweight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just is not believable. And it, yeah, anyway, so it would, but also I'm a musician, right? Mm-hmm. And, and here we go. First off. I like any of your topics. Let's start with a first. There's there's a list. There's a list. I hate movies about music. 
they suck. They're all terrible. No, none of the actors know how to play the, the fucking instruments and they, they fake it. Music, you cannot fake it. The, one of the best music movies I've ever seen is not the best because it was the, the best written or the best acted even. It was because they played and sang everything. It, it, like, yeah. like that's what I want. I don't want to to notice that you're lip syncing. I don't want to notice that your guitar is not plugged in, or or that or that you're playing a low note, but your hand is high up on the neck. Like I don't, you know, I want it to be real because if I notice that stuff, it takes me out. And I know that even people that are not musicians, there's something about it that's just not right, right? And so that drove me nuts. Plus, the music was horrible. Fever Dog, come on. Because if you think about it, there's this terror, you know, they're playing their awful song. And then there's this snippet when Jimmy walks on and you and you hear like Jimi Hendrix. music. Oh, oh, I gotcha. You hear Jimi Hendrix. And all of a sudden, you know, your skin just like crawls and you're like, yes. And so that's having the an amazing 70s. soundtrack butted up against their music was a yeah, big just, turn off. Yeah. I mean, a movie that did it right. That thing you do, hmm. I haven't seen that in forever. That Tom Hanks film uh-huh. that he wrote, he wrote the music for that. That music is fantastic, and you put it next to the Beach Boys or anything else that was going on in the time, and it holds up. It's really good. If you're going to have a movie about a band trying to make it, their music has to be at least as good as the stuff that was that was there, right? He's writing about this movie is supposed to be about his experience traveling with the Almond Brothers and other bands like that. Those are amazing musicians that wrote amazing music. You need to have this band's music at least up to par, which it wasn't. They didn't know how to play anything. They weren't actually singing. Like, I want those things that I need those things or else it ruins it. Also, dude, this is the 70s. This is the era of sex, drugs and rock and roll. And it's like bubblegum pop. It's pretty PG-13. It's way too pg like he's lying. If he really did this shit, he's lying. And he's this, he's writing about this. He's totally lying about it. A hundred percent. Especially if he's traveling with the Almond brothers. Are you kidding? The young Almond brothers back then? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. And that's what I can understand. If you want to get a PG 13 rating, which was this R or PG 13? I, I can't even remember. I would imagine it's an R. Yeah, I think so. But maybe to appeal to a wider audience, you don't make it as grandiose, nasty. I get it. But if you want to make a timeless film, if you want to make a film where in 20 years you look back and you're like, this was a good chronicle of that era, which is what I feel like this really tried to be. Honestly, I don't think that he was like, oh, we're going to bubblegum it. I think he was like, no, we're, we're going to make a good film that's going to last you know, a long time. And I just think it fell f- totally flat. I did not like the kid. What's his name? Uh, William. William. Yeah, I did not like William. I, I did like he was he was... He was very baby. Mm-hmm. Very innocent, innocent, white-eyed. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it, it was too much for me. It really, really was. It needed to be... A, I needed to have a little bit more from him in the beginning. Like, when he got backstage, that was what I was hoping he would be like for the whole rest of the film. You don't see that again. You don't see that kid again until the end in that conversation that we just played. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like maybe like right before it or something like that. But towards the end, then he, that, okay, that's, that's the kid. And I know the story is supposed to be him growing into that, but I needed more. I needed more of it. I just really did. It was annoying. And even 
even Kate Hudson, there, there were scenes like that where she was, she nailed it, man. She like totally nailed it. But then she was all annoying throughout uh, probably about half of it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe just a third of it. That's more, I don't know. No, Uh, she was annoying for a a good chunk of the film to me. And it it wasn't because she didn't act well. She was fantastic in it. Uh, Her and Philip Seymour Hoffman were the best parts of this film. Philip Seymour Hoffman was the best part, but she was the second best part uh, because she acted well. But, and I know that she was supposed to, she was playing her role and that was her role. And she did it really well. I don't think it was, it's not a knock on her acting at all. It's not more of a knock on the script, I think, than, than her. But you're right. I mean, he, uh, William is very vanilla and that's always going to be a big gamble because yeah. you are trying to pro- project this innocence and for a young nobody, uh, not only that as an actor, I have no idea what his background is, but for just this character to be a nobody walking into a world filled with famous people and he has no real charm to him. He's just this blank canvas that's soaking it all in and is being a part of the scene. Uh, that's really dangerous because that is kind of what you need that character to be. But at the same time, you do want a little bit more flavor out of him. I was literally going to say that word. <laughs> that's the word. A little yeah. more flavor. And I, again, I don't necessarily think is the actor's fault mm-hmm. here. I, I think it was the director on the day and not even his script. I mean, there's a lot of times he just doesn't say any words, yeah. you know, which is more of a directing thing than it is a script thing. So, yeah. And the other uh, issue, and this might be an acting thing is that Patrick Fugit, Fugit, whatever, uh, apologies. If by some miracle you run across <laughs> this, I'm not an asshole <laughs> in real life, <laughs> but the, uh, part of the problem too is, and I have the same problem, uh, is his voice kind of lacks a lot of musicality. It's a, it's a little bit more monotone. Um, and so whenever you're just listening to him, you're, you don't feel anything. You don't feel particularly attached to him. And so between his character being vanilla and maybe some dexterity in his vocal cords, uh, just, it does lack a certain amount of life, yeah. uh, in his character. Not to say, I think he did a poor performance personally, but I'm, I'm hearing where you're coming yeah. from. That's can, cause I know we're about to go to cinematography, but can I say something on Please, it? Yeah. That's another thing that pisses me off about, about musical films or films about music in general is it's movie cinematography that doesn't go. You're trying to tell a story about a rock band trying to make it in an era of giants. I mean, you, you, know, you can name 20 bands that have, la- their music has lasted 40 years, right? Let's, uh, we probably can't say that about today's era. Like there's no new bands that are coming out where like 40 years would be like, oh yeah, I totally remember because they're still touring. What? No, it doesn't happen right now. So this is a band that's trying to make it in an era of giants and you're f- shooting it like a movie. I don't want that. I want dirty angles. I want fast cuts. I want stuff that I have not seen before because I want to feel lost in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's on, you're, you're on tour and you're on the road. It is a fucking mess. Like there is in that era, right? It is a mess, especially at the level that they're at when we meet this band, right? They're playing in arenas. They're opening for Jimi Hendrix and for whomever and big artists. It's supposed to be nuts. And I want it to feel nuts. I didn't, it didn't feel nuts. Even when crazy stuff was happening with, you know, the, the band-aids and, and groupies and drugs and stuff, 
it was like, whatever. Like I, there was no interesting, there was no interesting cuts, no interesting angles. It was just, we're going to make a movie about a band and a kid following the band and writing about it. And that's what they did. And they made it. And it, it was, I think that this story should be retold and reshot in exactly that way. You know, like in a way of like, think of a, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop here in a second. Okay. But think, uh, you're like, please. No, no, no. This, think no, of, think of, I'm going to contradict like everything you're saying, which good, is going to be fun. Good. Think of a superhero movie, like a really good dark superhero movie with action sequences and shit. That's what this should have been. That's what, like, if that would have been this, oh man, this would have been a great episode and we would have been bouncing off the walls to watch it again. Maybe you were, but, but the interesting thing is that I didn't feel this way until this time watching it. Mm, Yeah. I I liked it before. And when you said, Hey, we're going to do this. You got excited. I was like, yeah, sure. It's, it's great. And then it's just like, Oh man. Okay. I'm done. So yeah, let's dive into, I cut out some, a good chunk of my notes and I'm still left with an absurd amount. Cause I talked no, more because I think I talked more already than I have in like the last three episodes. I ended up watching it three times. The first time I've, Holy crap. I've changed the way I've started to do these things. Uh, I'll watch it once without taking notes and just see if I can pick up on a question that I want to ask myself for when I do go through so that, because I kept finding out I would get halfway through a movie and realize, oh, they're doing this. But then I just missed the first half of the movie where I got to look for that, whatever it was. Uh, They're really doing this camera angle at a particular time or whatever. And so now I'm trying to cut that off at the pass and watch it once, find my question, then watch it, take notes. I did that and came up with the questions I want to ask. Got about two thirds of the way through it the second time and realized they're doing this. Uh, I need to go watch it again because I haven't been looking for this for the first two thirds of this movie (laughs) and it's a two hour movie. Uh, But luckily we, you know, punted for a week. And so I watched it earlier today and kind of fine tuned it. It didn't drastically change my notes, but uh, enough that to me it was drastic. Anyway, diving in, let's talk about the cinematography first. The way they established the time period and they established it really hard uh, in a number of ways they do the the title sequence it's handwritten it feels dated and then it's followed by more titles and b-roll of the streets and the stores the people the fashion they're doing a really good job of trying to establish you in this world in this time period and also they're all, it goes back to i didn't think i would talk about this but i think it, it's fitting because I think they're also establishing the kind of movie you're looking at with that handwritten title sequence. It's very childish. And I think a lot of this film is told since it's told from his point of view, his perspective. I think that's largely why uh, we we you're right. We don't see any of the, the really crazy shit that happens. The closest we get is, I guess, two scenes, really. The one where they're dancing around and you see a little bit of Penny Lane's boobs out of her coat and everyone's in their underwear and drinking. And then you see, oh, her ODing on Quaaludes. Like, that's definitely the realist section of the entire film is like watching her get her stomach pumped. Um, that yeah. didn't... Oh, totally. Oh, totally. I was like, man, if that totally. didn't like make you jump just a little bit. And so... Yeah, I think it because it's told from his point of view. And at the end of the film, he is still innocent. Like, even though mm-hmm. he's had sex, I don't think he gets high. But 
Yeah, he still maintained that. And so I don't think they saw a reason to really dive into the actual texture of that world so much as his perception of that texture. And if you look at all the compositions, they're mostly like mediums and wides and they have this really deep focus uh, instead of these really shallow shots and uh, really tight shots that kind of get more intensity out of you. And I think they do that too, not just to kind of maintain this, you know, childish vantage point, but it also helps uh, whenever you do co- cut to these close-ups, it, it's more intimate that way. You have these more intimate moments that are tighter and more shallow, and by doing that, you create these little bubbles that the characters inhabit with each other, because now the surrounding environment ceases to exist. You can't see it. You don't know where they are, really, even though a minute ago you did, but now it's just them and their world, and you're seeing like their eyes you know, cutting against each other, or you're seeing their dialogue much tighter, and that's just to establish that much more intimate environment and that isn't really as effective if you know you're shooting everything that way because it's that whole adage what is it uh if everything's special then nothing is special yeah yeah. (laughs) and i think that holds true here for sure but going back to you know composition in general i love this section where russell jumps from the rooftop because the way it's framed it's composed uh right at that moment they had this composition with him on the you know the left and then you had this big huge empty black space on the right and it makes us anticipate him filling that frame up because now you're like oh god you know he's about to he's really about to jump and it's uh it's also impressive because it's perfectly spaced so that when he jumps he doesn't like go out of frame and maybe that took you know a few shots but i just really appreciated that he makes it all the way to like the top right of that frame in in the air (laughs) and so i was like man that's impressive um and he begins falling right at that point Um, But then you also have the Quaalude scene. And I think in this scene, they make a really great use of Penny Lane's feet by showing them like dragging. And it's a great visual indicator of her consciousness. Like she's losing consciousness now. And a great easy way to do that is just to show that she's no longer standing. He's holding her up by looking at her feet. And I think it's doubly effective because when we do get to that section where she's uh, getting her stomach pumped, suddenly... Her feet are pumping again. She's getting her stomach pump. Her feet are pumping again. She's going to live. And that's a very quick, easy visual indicator that, that is both, you know, a little terrifying, but also like uh, you're happy. You're glad to see movement out of her. And that's just a really smart, you know, visual aid guide to what's happening in that scene. I also really loved the section right after he gets off the phone. Russell Hammond, right? Grabs the phone from William talks to the mom he thinks he's gonna sweet talk her the way he does everybody and then she like freaks him out and they do that thing on stage right they do the the band circle chant and then everyone starts walking out on stage well everyone else leaves and they're in this tiny little stage side room and he looks over at William and he's like your mom kind of freaked me out <laughs> and he grabs his shoulders and like she means well and this is all one shot because from there we follow Russell out onto the stage and it just opens wide up to this huge audience. And there's just, I don't know, hundreds at least, if not, you know, a thousand or two thousand people just filling out the crowd. And it's all one long tracking shot because we keep we continue going out there with them and we're seeing some of the performance start. And that, I think, is the realest rock moment that they really have in there. Totally. Agree. Um, and I love that kind of thing because 
it's like, damn, man, you're really adding so much scale to their lives because you're right, man. You're absolutely right. This is supposed to be a rock band on tour. Like you need to have some of that and they could have benefited from more of this kind of thing. Definitely. Just to add not only production value that says you're watching, you know, an A-list production, but also to sell their their reality a little bit more. It's helpful. I mean, they have some other shots and but it's you need something that ties in in one easy swoop the intimacy with the, the grandiosity with, yeah yeah with the stage performer yeah, yeah. Uh, that's so key and the only other time they kind of do that is when William gets into that first concert and he's like stand right over there as he's walking out on the stage and I'm like man I would feel like the effing man yeah. in that moment yeah because uh, he walks right on and just starts banging that guitar. Okay, so switching a little bit to editing and story techniques, I guess I'll call it. I love the section where the daughter, they spend so much time establishing those characters. And depending on how much time we have left, I'll dive uh, more into that. But they do a great job. And in that first 12 minutes, that's like 10% of the film, they spend with young William. And in doing so, they uh, do a really wonderful job of giving you an understanding of who is doing what and why. And there's this great moment that I just personally loved as an editing technique, which is when his big sister, Zoe Deschanel, who plays Anita, she's telling William and you just, you cut to this close up of William. And she says, this song explains why I'm leaving home to become a stewardess. And my assumption is we're watching William and we have no context to what's happening right now. But we assume she's running away, like she's about to run away without her mom knowing until we hear her mom's voice. And then it's like, oh, oh, wow, no, she's doing this to her mom. Like, this is very intentional on her part. And so I love something like that because by taking away context, we start to question what's happening. We, it makes us engage with the film, which helps us invest a little bit more in the character and what's happening by making us ask a question and then proving us wrong by just adding audio. That's all they did was just add the mom's voice and you're like, oh, no, 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 the whole family's here. What's happening? I love that kind of very simple technique. I love that this isn't technically editing, but, but the, the doorman timing I think is really funny. At the very first concert, you have when Stillwater, right, needs in. Before that, you have William. He's standing. He's trying to get in backstage. The doorman is immediate when responding to the buzzer, when William buzzes. Like, you know, just shut up. Go away. Go to the top of the ramp. What happens on the top of the ramp? Bang. You know, close. And then suddenly, we when Stillwater gets there and they need to get in, that doorman is nowhere to be around because it's just a little trick because we don't really know what's happening in there. We just kind of take it at face value that we're waiting on that guy. And you have this buzzer that's really loud and annoying, which, by the way, is a great technique to get our attention because it is annoying. We suddenly start engaging with the film a lot more. I personally hate that and love it at the same time because I recognize what they're doing. But I just hate those buzzing, the telephone ringing, the buzzer, the buzzer going off. I just crawl out of my skin in anger. But they suddenly have time to have all this conversation with William and it's completely arbitrary usage, you know, if in reality. But for the film, it's just this easy little technique that buys them time to say, oh, William, actually, yeah, you're okay because you love our music. <laughs> come with us. And then suddenly as he's like, yeah, come with us, the door magically, the doorman's suddenly magically there. Yeah. And you'll see this in films all over the place. It's not this exact way, but 
the that idea of there's this arbitrary thing that's happening that is allowing other people to have a conversation and establish a relationship in some kind of way. Also love this is goes back to more of a story technique of when he loses his virginity the next morning he gets off the phone with Rolling Stone and he's about to go track down Russell because he is very much freaking out about life right now and his responsibility as a journalist to Rolling Stone. And the girls say, hey, can you take our laundry for us? And he freaks out on them. He's like, who am I to you? Tell me right now, who am I to you? And you immediately cut to him carrying their laundry. Mm. And I love that for two reasons. For one, he just found out who he is to them. (laughs) You're not that special kid. But it's also a bit of a double entendre because he's a journalist. He's the press. And what does the press do? They air out dirty laundry. <laughs> and I love that. It's very simple and it's so subtle that you would never it's really. It's pretty on the pick nose, but actually. Yeah. But yeah, when you say it out loud, you're like, oh God, that's exactly what just happened. Yeah. And I find that just, you know, clever because you're not looking for it, because you're responding to the joke more than yeah. you're responding to the symbolism. Uh, and I love that because there's other symbolism. That's why it's a double entendre. Okay, real quick, and I say that. Very laughing. We'll dive into the themes and symbolism. I'm going to try to get through this super fast. Okay. Okay. I think it asks some interesting questions. It's asking, you know, who are we? Are we who we say we are? Who are we pressured to be? And that's a lot of the stuff the band is struggling with, right? Um, And everyone in this film, uh, even Penny Lane, I think, is struggling with who she feels pressured to be, maybe. If so, she plays it super cool. Anyway, everyone else is definitely struggling with that, particularly the band and William. But it's also asking, like, what does it mean to be cool? What is true rock and roll? And maybe most importantly, it's the subtle question that Lester Bangs is kind of harping on. Can rock and roll survive popularity? And this, I don't know much about rock history, so you can chime in at some point on this. But this seems like a very crucial, critical time, you know, for rock. And certainly as, you know, we've gotten lately, there's a lot of commentary to be made about that. Anyway, so let's dive into Lester Bangs is warning William. And what does he say? He says, you cannot make friends with the rock stars. These people are not your friends. They want you to write sanctimonious BS, these articles that just praise their status and, and brilliance. And he's worried that it just becomes an industry of cool, to quote him. And he also says, make your reputation on being honest and unmerciful. This Lester Bangs, and that's all in the intro. That's like him establishing himself in William's world. And that intro convo is kind of a bookend with the ending because after his whole experience, William's experience, he gets on the phone with Lester Bangs again and he tells him all the same things again. He's like, you need, you need to be honest and unmerciful. And so he gives him his first assignment. He goes to that first concert. And that's when we really start to establish these worlds because the journalists, the critics are the enemy of the band. And then by contrast, you have Penny Lane who has this great dialogue with William. How old are you? 18. Me too. How old are we really? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. (sighs) Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. 
What's your real name? I'll never tell. The enemy! Russell! Yes. Hey, hey. This is Penny Lane. Penny Lane, Russell Penn. Pleasure. Penny Lane, like the song. Have we met? That That's moment. the music. God. I totally lose myself in yeah. this. And so it's it's an interesting contrast between what Lester Bangs is saying. And, well, maybe it's not a contrast. It's very much in contrast with what Russell wants and what Lester Bangs is afraid of. And what Penny Lane is saying, the truth just sounds different. And you get to the end of the movie and the Rolling Stone is reading his puff piece that he initially writes. And... Then later, right, they respond to the truth. And it's like, man, this just sounds different. We'll get into that heavily in a minute. And so what we really have here is a love triangle. We have Russell and Penny and William, and they all match up together to establish a love triangle. You can maybe even say it's a quadrangle. It's a square uh, if you factor in Lester Bangs because each one of these people is trying to win over each other for their own reasons. They have their own desires. Russell wants Penny, you know, for love and sex. And he also wants William for success. This is his ticket. Rolling Stone is doing an article on you. That's, that's big news. And you have William who wants Penny for love and also wants Russell to feel cool. That's his. He wants to win Russell over, so he gets to he gets to finally feel cool, which his sister bluntly tells him at the beginning. One day you'll be cool. <laughs> it's so brutal and honest. And then you have Penny, which is interesting because she wants Russell to inspire great music, and she wants William. We don't know why. I don't know why. I've got to the end of the movie. I still couldn't tell you exactly why. Or maybe I can, maybe in a moment that'll come to come to light. But they all want something from each other. And you get on the road at the pool party and Russell is finally about to do the interview with William whenever he gets him to turn off the recorder, of course, and tells him, man, I trust you. I'm just going to be honest. Just make us look cool. <laughs> it's like, damn, bro. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, tonight it's friends and he's totally doing everything Lester Bangs was warning him about and the the paradox a little bit is that Russell says he wants to be cool right he wants to look cool and Rolling Stone in front of everybody and but he also says he wants what's real right when he gets to the party he starts going on and on and on about this is real you're real you want to watch my snake eat a rat yes <laughs> <laughs> it's it's that was a good moment yeah and what he can't see though is that real is cool i think he's having this struggle of public perception versus reality and that they're really the same thing because as lester bangs says the only true currency in this world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool that's the best god that is the best line of the movie so great absolutely i'm so glad he said it yeah yeah <laughs> Because <laughs> I'd have been like, ah, oh, damn it, why did Penny Lane have to say that? You ruined it. <laughs> and so 
when confronted about William's article, Russell, uh, he says, maybe we just don't see ourselves the way we really are. And that's a real moment of honesty and introspection. Of course, right after that, like the roadie or maybe the drummer uh, says, he's got you on saying that you're a golden god. He's like, did I say that? Because <laughs> yeah. now he's having that moment. Meanwhile, in that same scene, Jeff Beebe is so upset. He's like, is it that hard to make us look cool while he's wearing a Jeff Beebe shirt? <laughs> <laughs> You're making yourself look uncool. That, is that too. That is awesome. <laughs> and the reality is they're denying the truth. And maybe rock and roll isn't ready to look at itself in the mirror. But what I love is that... Penny Lane, that clip we just heard, she busts William about trying to be cool instead of telling the truth, which is important for him as a journalist. And you have Russell. He's still wrestling. He says, we play for the fans, not the critics. And I think symbolically, right, he represents rock and roll. He is rock and roll. And by contrast, Penny says, we're not groupies whenever she's confronted with this idea of being a groupie and just there to be close to famous people. And her mentality is really, we inspire the music because I think she is the soul of rock and roll. Her, her attitude with Russell is he's, he's my last project. You know, um, I don't normally do this with a lot of people and on its face, you're probably looking at her like, Oh, you're just full of shit. And you're just making up excuses to be close to famous people. But I think, you know, more symbolically, she represents the soul of rock and roll and the soul of fandom in and of itself because Lester bangs it. So there's this great moment when William is recalling what Lester bangs said. And he, when he said at the beginning of the film, he says they will run, they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. And that scene plays and it overlaps this great moment with Penny Lane dancing around carelessly, free, you know, carefree on the messy remains all by herself on the show's floor uh, from from the previous show while we're listening to Lester Bangs's, you know, little comments about what's at stake. The soul of rock and roll kind of being at stake there. And from there, from that, you know, they're going to ruin and strangle everything we love about it. We cut to. We immediately see Russell gamble away Penny Lane, literally, for beer and money. Mm -hmm. They exchanged sex and love for drugs and cash. And I think there's a commentary there about how rock and roll is literally doing that, you know, in this film, by giving away that thing that, they're that they really are supposed to be there for. And we have the, uh, not long after, right, we have that quaalude scene where... She, William rolls up in the hotel room and she's clearly overdosing and she starts giving her stewardess speech as the story is preparing to land. And if we recall at the beginning of the film, she, she does it. And that I think is the film finally taking off because we have such a long establishment of the world and the characters before we get to the story. Cause the story is the road trip. It's the tour. And it takes, I don't know, 20 minutes 25 minutes to get to that point. And so she starts giving that speech again as, as she's ODing. And I think that's the landing sequence. This is our, our love stories coming to an end. Cause that's also the moment at the beginning when she starts having the, the, the romance really with Russell and William, right. In this scene of the overdosing Quaalude scene, we're intercutting his mom at his graduation. And I think this is interesting because William is graduating 
and he's saving Penny Lane. And I think it's more symbolic because what you really, if you step back here a little more macro, is that what you have is a critic saved the fan, the soul of rock and roll. So more symbolically, you know, maybe they're not the enemy. Maybe there's the salvation of rock because right after that, we get into the airplane death sequence where everybody starts losing their shit. But it's a moment of clarity, of course, and truth. Russell says, um, oh, my God. Well, he starts singing Buddy Holly, which is really dark. <laughs> Very. Like, damn. But man. yeah, why not? Yeah. Like, make a joke. And but then he also says, uh, you know, he loves everybody. You have the manager says he killed a man uh, and he quits. And you have the other manager he's, says that he's, he's embezzled. <laughs> the guy says he's gay. <laughs> the guy says he's gay. You have the bandmates who slept around with everybody. Jeff is bitter. And then the manager says again, it's all happening, <laughs> which is a great like uh, little theme. And then you have Will who comes really clean on Penny and he says, y'all used her and you threw her away. She almost died and he saved her. The critic, the enemy saved the soul of rock and roll. And there's that wrestling that's happening between these three, you know, sim- symbiotic, you know, characters that... After they're safe, they land. Russell says to Will, write what you want. And he's really struggling. And he says, he gets on the phone with Lester Bangs and he says, look, if you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. And of course they deny it, but their love of the true fans sends them back to, back to the truth, right? When Russell finds out Penny Lane knows what you did to William, then he's like, crap. He calls up the, the place. She, you know, tricks him into going to meeting with him. And it's because of the fan that really the critic has its place. And you have to remember, William and Penny live in the same city. The critic and the fan live in the same neighborhood and are coming from the same place. And ultimately, I think that's that's what's being discussed here is that rock is at this crisis point. And it's really as much as, you know, the bands, the, the, the artists hate the critic it's really the critic who's saving the soul of of rock and maybe music and art itself is by being you know more critical because if all you do is play to the fan then you're not being true to yourself that's not cool it's whenever you're trying to give someone what you think they want how is that honest how is that real it's not and if that's what russell really wants is to be real and cool they they're the same thing and you can't just disconnect them that way. And I think that's really what the the, the theme and the, the resolution is, mm-hmm. is by having, yeah, the critic is the one who saves rock and roll and they all need to get along <laughs> together. Yeah, I mean, I would I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I like, mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I will say that it's dead. It's been dead for a long time. Sure. But the thing that killed it wasn't the critics. Right. I, I do agree that with that. I think the the last the last great rock band, like if you want to, like rock band, was probably Nirvana. It probably died with Kurt Cobain. I think. I mean, you could argue, well, Pearl Jam is still playing, or I mean, name me like another rock band that embodies what. And I don't necessarily mean sex and drugs. I mean mm-hmm. like the apathy of what anybody else thinks. Yeah, or because you just don't care. 
Because that's what Jeff Beebe literally says whenever yeah. in his first interview is something, and I'm going to misquote it, but it's like, rock, man, is just about being real and honest. And, you know, if you don't understand that, then telling them, fuck you. And mm-hmm. to your point, like, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, and so the caveat there is if you don't care and nothing happens, then you start thinking, well, maybe I should care as an artist, right? Maybe I should care what people think because then maybe I'll get noticed and people will like it more. Whereas in actuality, and I'm, I'm lumping myself in there. I've t- totally done that. But when in actuality, not caring is the whole point of being of rock and roll. It's, it's the, I'm going to do something that no one else has done and I don't give a shit if anybody likes it. That is rock. That's, that is it in a sentence in one sentence that's rock and roll. And that does not happen anymore. I mean, even if, even bands, I mean, even bands that were around in the early nineties or the eighties that are still around, they're just not making the same. I mean, granted, I know music has to evolve and stuff, but it's evolved out of rock and roll from rock and roll. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like one of my favorite bands of all time, U2. I'm not saying that their m- music is bad now, but I, it is different. It is not rock and roll. You can call it something else. You can call it pop. You can call it just rock, but it's not what it was when they put out Joshua tree. It is not what it was. You know, streets have no name. They've never written anything like it. They never will. And, and that's okay. But to say that rock is not dead and to not be able to name anybody that is a true rock and roll artist. Yeah. And it's, it's just sad that it's a, um, that it's their own fault and not the fault of critics. I mean, it's, you know, and to your point, you know what? I honestly wouldn't be surprised just hearing you say that jogged the memory of Cameron Crowe writing or doing that documentary. Oh, PJ 20. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, and maybe him growing up, you know, in uh, Seattle, Mm -hmm. uh, around Pearl Jam and Nirvana, maybe this film is really a reference to that era. Mm. And maybe he just said it in the seventies to discuss what was happening in the nineties, especially at this time period, whatever, 99, 2000. Yeah. And, I can imagine growing up in that scene and being at that time period, you know, in the late nineties and just feeling your heartbreak. Yeah. You could, you could feel it changing. Yeah. Anyway, point long story short, I, I totally agree with that, with that theme. And it's actually probably to go back, circle back to what we talked about in the mm-hmm. very beginning is why I, the first few times I watched it, I really liked it and I really identified with it because it made me, feel okay as a musician at at the time made me feel okay to continually write stuff that I, you know, not for other people, like not for the, for the purpose of like making an album or, or anything just to do it, you know? And maybe that's why I identified with it and liked it the first few times. And maybe because my life's changed a little bit is why I don't like it now. You know, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I'm much more of a critic. (laughs) I'm much more of an outsider than I am. Uh, I'm much more of the, the, uh, the enemy than I am, you know, the actual artist now. So I feel okay with, with saying that kind of stuff. I don't know. That's really interesting. interesting. We have a couple minutes, so I'll just run through the other little block, which still isn't all my It's notes. a little block? It really is a little block. Okay. Um, the way they establish character at the beginning, like they really take their time establishing the character in the era, and I think it helps make it timeless and identify 
so many character decisions throughout the film. And so I don't feel like I see a lot of films do this nowadays where they really take their time establishing character motivations in the world. Because now, as you're going throughout the film, you kind of understand why William is so precocious, right? When we first meet him, his mom is having that philosophical you know, question about To Kill a Mockingbird. And his mom is bright, and she challenges her kids to think. And William is up to the task. He's really precocious. And um, as a side note, I love using that long lens while they're walking in front of the theater down, down the sidewalk. Because they're incorporating, using that really long lens, for one, makes it a little bit easier to pull focus and just your general setup. setup. But it also incorporates a lot of foreground and background crossing movement to give it a lot of energy into the scene without stealing away the attention of the characters. Just a little, little tidbit. Um, the, also love the, uh, the convo continues at home where we meet Anita, played by Zoe Deschanel. And we get a sense, a little bit more context of the mom. She's very strict, uh, she's, but she's kind of hippie strict. It's not like she's this fundamentalist Christian woman. Yeah. She's like wanting to challenge and rebel against society. And Anita, you know, ironically, is just like her mother. She's independent. Her mom's independent. Guess what? So is your daughter. This and I kind of crack up. This is a house of lies as she's running off to her room. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. The uh, but I love that her mom, Frances McDormand, mom rebels against culture, and the daughter rebels against her mom's rebel culture. It's this interesting little dichotomy that how do you get around that? You don't. You really. Your children are going to be the antithesis of you and you at the same time. It's crazy. Uh, and then lastly, like the mom reveals, right? She's lied to Will about his age and Will isn't who he thinks he is, who he was told he is. And I find that to be, you know, a lot of the inspiration behind why he listens to his sister really starts listening to rock and he combines what his mother's been teaching him to become, you know, a journalist and a, and a critic. And it really informs the rest of the movie so well that I think it was time well spent. Whereas maybe if another movie did this, I'd be like, cut it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but here I think it really serves a good purpose. So, and honestly, I mean, if you're an act, just back one more second to the, the critic verses mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the, the, the artist, if you make really good music mm-hmm. that you love, who gives a shit what a critic thinks, you know, as a starving artist that can hurt you obviously, because yeah. some people listen to critics. I don't know who I've never, I've never once bought or not bought a record because a critic said it's good or bad. That's such a good point. It, I have you No. most people don't. It's, it's just the publicity. And I think the problem is that artists, in that era and even now, you know, they want good press, good press, good press. It doesn't matter. That's a great point. I will. Okay. So I'll put an asterisk next to my quick note is that I used to read a lot of the, um, the source, uh, hip hop magazine and there's, they have their ratings, uh, five mics. If something got a five mic, I, I probably did buy that even if I didn't know the artist. So very few. Did you, were you excited about one? Or did you listen to one and then hear or read a critique on it and decide you didn't like it? No. Okay. That is the very much truth, yeah. There you go. I have albums that are They're, just killed by the critics, and I'm like, I love that album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't matter. There should be an asterisk by every single critique saying, you know, but if you like it, yeah. Yeah, have fun. Yeah. You know, if you like Weird Al, go for it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, last question for you. As we're butting up against it. Okay. 
maybe you already feel like you already answered this, but you've done your fair share of touring in a band. How did watching this line up with that? Like the, the hustle and bustle and the, I don't know, the, uh, the weird, calm chaos. So, I mean, it's hard to answer because this is a totally different era than now. Sure. Now is like you're running and gunning. You know, you go to a show, you play, you jump in the van, you go to the next show, you play. It's like, like it's back a whole back nights. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. And that's everyone. That's everyone. But it's, I mean, I'm, I was always the kind of person I could not, I couldn't drink and I couldn't do drugs or I couldn't sing. You know what I mean? I, I just, that was it. I had, I had a fragile voice and it was, I had to take care of it. So it was not a whole lot of debauchery in, mm-hmm. at least by me, right. you know? <laughs> um, and, and in that era, you know, and this, this band is at another level that I never got to. This band was touring in a bus every, everywhere had a driver. It was, I mean, the dirty parts of my, my touring were, you know, me driving through the, from, you know, 1am until 6am and handing it off to somebody else as I get a cup of coffee or I crash in the back of the van or something, you know, it was like, it was do it yourself you know, and then me producing it, calling the, the next city, making sure that everything is, you know, finding a place to park the damn van, like, you know, loading in, playing, loading out, a lot of waiting and downtime uh, while everyone else drank. It was just uh, a totally different experience. Yeah. Um, so in that regard, I, I did like seeing that mm. in this movie. I did like seeing like, oh, they'd be awesome to be at that level. It'd you have awesome. roadies and a driver. Yeah, exactly. And- like somebody else can set up my amps, you know, and, and I'll show up and, and tune my guitar and I'll show up and just put it on me and I'll play. Yeah, that, that'd be nice one day. And we had a couple of shows that were, you know, sort of like that, but it was never at that level every night. So wow. it's kind of hard to speak to, but uh, yeah, in that era, I, I imagine a band like that, you know, it was probably a lot more fun. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I don't have a better story for you. No, totally great, man. The reco for the week? Okay, I'm, I'm actually, it's funny because you said you're going kind of off the cuff and I'm sticking... Oh. To the Cameron Crow wagon and oh, nice. uh, going to recommend Vanilla Sky. Yeah. And one of the reasons is, well, it's two reasons. One, I really like Tom Cruise in this movie. Yeah. And two, it was the first time I ever heard Seeger No kidding. I yeah. don't even remember them being in there. At the end. Oh, my God. Yes. You're welcome. That's awesome. Go watch it again. Great freaking reco. Yeah. So my offbeat recommendation is going to be a music album. I kind of want to recommend two because reasons, but, uh, <laughs> that's not a reason. <laughs> that's a word. So, well, the, I'm going to save the other one for another day. Yeah, I'm going to no find problem. another period. Oh, good. And I'll reference to that. So maybe a reason to tune in. I don't know. Maybe not. And so my recommendation is bad company. Yes. Old rock band. Oh man. One of my first albums. God, was yeah. it really? Yes. You lucky ass. Yes, dude, man. Their, their self-titled album is phenomenal. Yep. And their self-titled track on their self-titled <laughs> album. Hey, I know about that. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> we doubled it. <laughs> it's so good. It's um, Bad Company on the album Bad nice Company. Uh, by Bad Company. Is. 
That's great. That's great. It's a really oh. like fantastic. If you've ever never heard heard of them, get out of your bubble and yeah. like, throw that on. I've guaranteed. It's an old band. Yeah. Old band. Been around a long time. Freaking amazing. Yeah. So don't forget to review. Drop us a uh, subscription, what have you. I'm botching all of this right now. Stay tuned for next week. We're going to do Gladiator. Yeah. There's some really cool. interesting things about clothing in that that I didn't know, and I'll tell you all about it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes or Google Play Podcast, Android, Hot Dog Fun Times, whatever <laughs> the stuff is called. <laughs> and leave us a note if you want us to cover something, whatever yeah. comments about how wrong we both are on this episode and what have you you can do all of that at the pestlepodcast.com slash almost famous and we're going to leave you with a quote of the day by john lennon yeah. nice choice in this <laughs> very nice choice there are two basic motivating forces fear and love when we're afraid we pull back from life when we're in love we open to all that life has to offer with passion excitement and acceptance very true very true one, one, recently, I heard someone talking about the difference between experiencing nervousness and excitement and the difference in that, sorry, something like the difference in that was only the outcome, right? So, wow. right. So when you, when you're nervous and when you're excited, the same thing in your body happens right? You get elevated heart rate. Maybe, uh, uh, you breathe a little heavier. You start thinking about, you know, like how, you know, the process of what you're about to do. I always have those feelings before I race. And then someone said, and when you feel at that point that you're, that you're nervous or that you're afraid, tell yourself you're actually excited. And then the way that you see what you're about to do or what you're about to experience or what's happening in your life is completely different with just telling yourself it's a different word other than, than that. So very similar in, in this, you know, because there's a lot of times like if you're in love with somebody, you're afraid, you know, it's, it can be scary, you know, if, yeah. if you haven't been in love before or you have, but this time it's real, you know, like this time is heavier. It can be, you know, really scary. But if you just kind of tell yourself that it's, it's okay, you know, to accept this, how, how you feel as a positive rather than a negative, the way that you see that other person, I mean, it's just a more, it's just a more positive way to look at it. And you might see that other person in a better light or maybe in a worse light. And that's important to know at the beginning, but anyway. No, yeah. that's such a good, such a good point. It's all in perception and yeah, if you're in love with someone and you're afraid of losing them, then yeah, it is going to be tension and, and nervousness. But to your point, like if you look at it and you say, man, I'm excited and I'm not afraid. I'm, I love what I have. Yeah. Right then you don't put too much weight on it. Yeah. You know, like when, when my wife and I start, I've told you this, when we started dating, I told her, I'm going to push you away. I'm going to pull you in and push you away. And, and, you know, just know that that's kind of what I do and I'll try not to to do it, but I don't. And she said, stop. We're either going to break up or we're going to get married. That's it. And now we have two kids sleeping upstairs. That point is I was putting way too much pressure on it. You know, I was, I was like way too much weight on it. I, cause I, I liked her, but I didn't want to hurt her, but I didn't know, you know how much it did and all this stuff. And, and she just took it all off and said, just relax and enjoy right now. You know, which That's is so cool. definitely, definitely this. I love this quote, man. And, John is her favorite beetle, <laughs> you know, 
And I can see why, because he says stuff like this. Right. And he writes amazing music like this. So. And you're good, a Ringo good fan. Yeah. <laughs> you shut your mouth. You shut your mouth. Ringo's got some music. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't think of a, a word I wanted to use. No, I'm a Paul guy, man. Nice. Best screamer in rock and roll, man. Oh. Best screamer. Anyway. That's awesome. Thank you for this quote. This is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so make sure to, like we said earlier, make sure to review us, leave, leave us a note and, uh, and come join us next week when we do gladiator. Thank you again for joining us until next week. I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.